0: listening to Pet Candy. Hello everybody and welcome to Simply Pets and I'm your host Shannon Gregoire. This show is brought to you by Petsy.
1: Get instant access to veterinary professionals when you need them. Download Petsy today.
0: Today I brought my very special friend Tatiana Rogers to co-host with me
1: and talk with Mr. Carl Safina today. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited for this episode, Shannon. It's going to be fantastic. Sharing our love for animals with the with the world and with a very 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 special person who has also showed the world so much about animals. So excited. <laughs> Yes. Hi, Mr. Safina. So nice for you to join us today.
2: Hi, how are you? It's really great to be here. And please call me Carl.
1: Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule um, to join us today. Um, Shannon and I both had the opportunity to start reading your um, new book, Becoming Wild. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about it and what our audience can expect when when they start reading it?
2: Yeah, well, Becoming Wild is a book about culture and mostly in non-humans, but I think you understand what culture is in humans a lot better after you read it and put it in perspective with other kinds of animals. And I go to three places in the world to be with sperm whales in the Caribbean Ocean that are very cultural. They have very strong family and clan cultures. They, um, They stay together for their whole lives. They're actually social... Social lives of of those whales are a lot like elephants. They live in female-led families. They stay together for their whole lives. Then we go to the Amazon rainforest in Peru to be with macaws, the big parrots. And then we go to Uganda in Africa to be with chimpanzees. And along the way, we meet lots and lots of different other kinds of animals as well and talk about what culture is.
1: So how did you get into it, Uh, Carl? How did you get into into this kind of conservation work and into, you know, just into animals. Tell us from the start.
2: <laughs> well, part of the answer is I'm not really sure because I, I was a city kid in Brooklyn, New York, and for some reason, I just always loved animals. We didn't have really any animals. You know, we didn't have any pets uh, when my love of animals started. Um, we didn't live where there were wild animals. We didn't live near a farm. And I just always loved animals. So eventually, you know, I started to get some goldfish and, and a couple of lizards and begged my parents to take me to the zoo all the time and to the aquarium and the Museum of Natural History in New York. And eventually, um, when I was seven years old, I started raising pigeons. That was sort of a game changer in my life, I would say. And then when I was nine... We went to the Catskill Mountains. That's really the first time I was ever in a place that was a natural place and just always expanded and expanded from there and has continued to expand for all this time.
1: So what kind of pigeons did you raise? I recently learned a little bit about pigeons and racing pigeons and tumbler pigeons. And there's like so much to know about pigeons. Who knew coming from Los Angeles? (laughs) I thought there was only the city pigeon, but...
2: Yeah, no, there's probably dozens of different kinds of pigeons, but I raise homing pigeons. I, I was only interested in homing pigeons. I didn't like all the fancy stuff. I didn't like the birds that flew around um, tumbling through the air and doing what seemed to me like very humanly induced genetic changes from a lot of very heavy selective breeding. So the pigeons I had, I, I was always really in love with the idea of nature, and the homing pigeons were the most natural of all the domesticated pigeons. And I loved that they really had this tremendous ability to return home from great distances. And sometimes I would take them with me if we went on trips to visit relatives, and, and I would release them with a little note on their leg to my uncle who was back at the coop, you know, taking care of the rest of the birds and that kind of thing.
0: And they made it home?
2: Always, yeah.
0: That's so cool.
2: <laughs> they go up and they, they make a few circles that's called getting their bearings. And they somehow in their in their pigeon genius, they figure out somehow in a place where they cannot see where they belong and they've never been there before, they figure out, where to go and then they get there and nobody really knows how they do that you know it's really one of the many mysteries and people say oh they're just pigeons or they're flying rats or something that's terrible that's that says more about us than it does about them but I I was always amazed by those birds I always loved them and they still amaze me
0: That's so cool. And they're so pretty. Like if you actually look at them, their feathers are quite beautiful.
2: (laughs) Yeah, very beautiful with a lot of iridescence. And um, yeah, in fact, all of the members of the pigeon group, especially a lot of the wild pigeons and the wild doves, they're really beautiful birds. So
0: what's your experience growing up like in school and everything? Like, what did you go to college for? Is Is it like animal sciences or behavioral psychology, something like that?
2: I went to school for environmental science and then after I graduated with my bachelor's degree, I went to graduate school for ecology and I got a master's and then I stayed and I got a PhD. I have a PhD in ecology. And the thing about ecology is it's entirely about relationships and my natural proclivity is to think about and pay attention to relationships. Right now I'm paying attention to a special relationship right here. I'm petting one of my dogs who was sitting right next to me here. She just came home. But, you know, I I think the world really opens up and I mean, what is more important than relationships, really?
1: We'll be right back with more Pet Candy. Hi, this is Caitlin Palmer, host of Bees and Queens here on Pet Candy Radio, and I want to tell you about a cool new app called Petsy. You can use it to talk or video chat with a credentialed veterinary professional instantly. It's so easy to use and you can ask them anything, I mean anything. What to feed your pet, what to do if your pet is sick, how to house train your puppy, any questions you have. Plus. Petsy is there for you 24 hours a day and 7 days a week, and it's only $20 per consultation. What else do I love? There's no hidden fees or subscriptions. So for just $20, you can get peace of mind when it comes to your pet's health. Download Petsy for free today in the App Store. You'll be glad you did. So that's something that you seem to really explore in this new book is just the relationships that these animals develop in their respective groups.
2: Yeah. Well, what culture is, the new book is focused mainly on culture and what culture is it's the behaviors and the attractions and skills that you learn socially. The thing is that you learn them socially. It's not, it's not things that you invent yourself. It's things that you get, mostly at first from your mother and this this is true among all the animals that are cultural they can be specialized skills about hunting or foraging they can be social skills about dominance hierarchies they can be a lot of things but you learn them at first from your mother and then from the rest of your social group and then it flows socially to the next generation that's what culture is when we talk about culture We're not really talking about culture most of the time. We're talking about products of culture. So if you say, uh, you know, technology is culture or religion is culture or fashion is culture, sports is culture. No, those are the products of culture. Culture is the answers that we get from our social group about the question of how do we live here? How do we live here? So we dress in certain ways. That's our answer to how we live here. We have a certain language that we share. That's our answer to how we live here. And other cultures have different answers to those questions. And that is true, really true with people, because people are the most cultural of all animals and we understand culture better because we live in it and we live among different cultures. But this is really also true with all the other animals that have cultures. They, learn these kinds of things from their social group.
0: Yeah. It's really interesting to see, like I started reading your book about the sperm whales and everything of how they interact and, you know, form those different communications and their cultural web work of their (laughs) livelihoods, I guess you could say. And, you know, like what happens if some animal doesn't have a mother, like, does the culture break or what happens?
2: Oh, well, things can go different ways. I mean, let's take chimpanzees for instance. If the chimpanzee is very, very young when their mother dies, they will probably die if they really need milk because chimpanzees, first of all, they would have to find a mother who's willing to adopt who has milk. And if she already has her own child, there's not enough milk for two. But if, let's just say, an infant loses a mother at the same time a mother loses an infant, that adoption may occur. If they're older, old enough to eat on their own, they usually get adopted. And they may even be adopted by a male. This is interesting because chimpanzee males do not provide any parenting to their own offspring. It's entirely mother-child as far as care. But if there's an or- orphan, often a male will adopt that orphan. So it's pretty interesting, it shows a lot, of, a lot of understanding of the situation, altruism, flexibility, all these kinds of things get obvious when you know something goes wrong and you see how they respond to it that helps you to understand this whole range of awareness and flexibility that they have.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting that even the male chimpanzee kind of steps up in that way in the culture. I guess, what if the the child or the baby has um, a bad mom, or you know, a mom that doesn't accept her child? What happens then?
2: I don't think I've ever heard of that happening in the wild. I think that's a thing. And I don't know if it happens in chimpanzees in captivity, but rejecting a baby is something that I've heard of in captivity for various species. I've never heard of it in the wild. And, you know, I think that has to do with some of the psychological effects of captivity. Some animals I think are totally okay with it, depending on the facility and the kind of care they get and others They never feel right, you know, and I think that they get psychological problems, neuroses and and other kinds of things that prevent them from reacting appropriately. But I've never heard of a wild chimpanzee rejecting their own child.
0: Well, that's good. I guess there's no bad moms, but some bad dads.
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah.
1: We'll be right back with more Pet Candy. Pet Candy Radio delivers world-class content with engaging voices and inspirational messages curated by a network of top influencers and experts. Stream 24-7 at MyPetCandy.com. So I guess I have a question. So culture, you're saying culture is how we live here, right? How do we live in this environment? Yeah. How do we interact here in our environment? So what happens is the environment changes? Like right now, you know, we have climate change going on. We have deforestation going on. How, I mean, I guess it's such a broad question because I would imagine each
2: No, it's not. A, it's it's a broad question, but it's a pretty easy question. Most natural cultures are very conservative. You learn to do what works where you live. Because if you learn what's food, eat what's food. Don't start eating things that you don't know what they are because some of them can be poisonous. So it's very conservative. And when things change, it's hard for animals to change their behaviors to confront new circumstances. So it becomes a matter of how fast things are changing. If they're changing very, very slowly, and there's always, always change on earth, but usually it's very slow change. And so cultures have chances to adapt. But many, many extinctions that have happened have happened because climates have changed and animals can't adapt fast enough, even for slow changes that are where they need physical changes or they need behavioral changes. If you start to change places as fast as we're changing them, then wild populations have a very difficult time coping and many wild populations have declined and are declining enormously. Mostly we don't hear about that because we have an Endangered Species Act that only sounds a warning when something is about to crash not when it is rapidly losing altitude only when it's about to crash that's a problem with that law it it doesn't warn us soon enough and that's why you don't hear about the fact that most wild animals have declined tremendously you know most of them simply lose their place to live they they lose their habitat there's no place for them the young ones can't survive and and that's what happens. But some of them, there's also the cultural layer where what they knew about what to do changes too fast. And then others do adapt quickly to changes. You know, a good example for those of you in California, for instance, and, and, and actually in most of the country, is coyotes. Coyotes have rapidly adapted culturally They've learned how to live in the suburbs. They've learned how to live in a lot of urban areas. There are a lot of coyotes very true. in Chicago, for instance. They're starting to come into New York City. They're showing up on Long Island now, and nobody clear exactly how they've gotten here, but they are getting here. They might, be, they might be coming across on bridges, they might be swimming, but they are hmm. very, very, very adaptable. Some animals are not very adaptable. They're pretty rigid, so there's a range. There,
0: Yeah, it's really interesting to see, like, you know, how animals change. And I guess that's, you know, why people are, have been able to separate, like humans have separated themselves so much from, you know, all of our animal relatives is because our ability to adapt, to change, our adaptability, our survivability has been so fluid and so easily changed to our environment. Like, how do we live here has been... Like our ability to change that has been drastic and dramatic. So it's really interesting to see how other species kind of cope with that too.
2: Right. Well, drastic and dramatic, but for a long time, it was very, very slow. Like there were people who basically didn't change much for tens of thousands of years. And then there was the development of agriculture in a few places, and that spread over thousands of years. And Many people hunted and gathered and grew a few things. That's the way it was in a lot of North America, for instance. And um, now we're in a period of completely explosive change, bewildering change. And, you know, the industrial explosion and the urbanization explosion have all occurred with increasing acceleration.
0: Yeah, that's true, I guess. You know, the environment that we grew up in has changed nothing, no other period of time rather than the the last couple hundred years has really changed as quick as this past has.
2: Yeah, except maybe when the asteroid struck the Earth 60 million years ago and, and killed most of what was here.
1: Master reset. Man, well, hopefully we can reach a master reset without the need of an of an asteroid or anything like that.
2: Well, we, unfortunately, I have to say we are the asteroid. Um, a lot of animals are dying off. A lot of habitats are dying off. You know, the coral reefs are dying. Rainforests are shrinking rapidly. Almost all the wild animal populations are declining a lot. That's because of us. There's, we're too much of a good thing. And there are just too many people trying to stay alive at the same time.
0: Yeah, our populations are definitely way up there. So do you think COVID was like some sort of master reset? Or what do you think about that?
2: I think COVID opened a window that gave us a new view for a few minutes. And then there was a lot of talk about, oh, maybe living differently. But everybody just really wanted to just get back to doing everything exactly the same way. And that's the way it's playing, you know, people, people getting their vaccinations and, you know, trying to go back to the life they knew because that's the culture we have is the life we knew and we want it back. We don't really feel so comfortable doing things differently even if there's a lot of better ways of doing things. We'd rather just get back to the way we know.
1: So for the average, I mean, I know there's a lot of things that can be done to hopefully combat us, the asteroids but for someone coming from the city, you know, what would be a change, you know, a lot of small changes accumulate, accumulate to big change. So what would be some changes that people can make in their daily life? Or what is something that someone can do to just help with this very serious issue of?
2: Yeah, well, we, we make a lot of decisions all the time. Every day we decide what to eat, what to buy, what kind of car to drive, whether to keep the air conditioner running, You know, depending on how old we are, what profession we want to try to be in. Are are, are you going to be in, you know, a business or a mission-oriented not-for-profit group? Or, you know, people do all kinds of different things. I know some people whose strategy is to make a ton of money in the, you know, in the stock market or investing or real estate or something like that, and then give a lot of it to mission-driven groups. And there are people like me who just wanted to work in mission-driven groups. We decide usually, you know, how many children we want to have. That has an enormous effect on things. We decide who to vote for. That has a big effect on things. And as we've seen very recently, you know, we had one guy undoing as many environmental protections and animal protections as possible, and a new guy trying to put them back as fast as possible, that really matters. So what's bad is when people say, oh, I, you know, what can I do? I can't do anything. I'm just one person. Everybody who's ever lived has been just one person. So get off that one and join up with people who are like-minded and do what you can do in the decisions that you make every day. Just, just ask, no one can be perfect and no one is going to save the world alone but just to ask yourself what can i what's the best decision i can make here am i going to go to the store and buy something that is wrapped in plastic or am i going to go to the local green grocer and get something out of a crate of vegetables that has been grown locally or maybe organically and you know contribute to a real family instead of a grocery chain that sells plastic around everything those are decisions that we make and they affect the quality of our own life and then they put us in a position to say well i can now i've done this now i now i actually there's something else i can think that i can do a little bit better just i mean to me that's that's a good way to live and that's the way i've tried to live
0: yeah absolutely and trying to uh, you know support your local communities and people who you know live off these things and you know their livelihood depends on these sales i like go into farmers markets and things like that and eating things in season and, you know, locally can be really beneficial.
2: Yeah. One of, one of the most important things to human beings is community. You know, feeling that you're contributing something, knowing who you're dealing with. That is not only a beautiful thing that really our minds and hearts need, but it's also a very constructive thing. Right here from the window that I'm looking at, I, I can look across at the greengrocer I like to buy from and less than a mile away is a big supermarket. Now, last summer, I, I was buying these cherries that she had that were like the most delicious cherries I've ever had in my life. So I went there one time and I said, um, you know, I wanted to get a, a pound of cherries. And she said, Oh, I, I just ran out. I'm going to have them probably tomorrow. I'm going to get some more. So, Okay. She knew my first name, but the next morning, there was a pound of cherries outside my front door on my porch. Now, you know, this is a nice way to live. If you, if you ask yourself, can I contribute to community by going to a real person who's selling real stuff rather than going to the anonymous supermarket chain, right? So these things, they make a difference in, in how life feels.
1: We'll be right back with more pet candy. Hey, pet parents. This is your favorite lifestyle guru, Renee Michelle, and I'm excited to tell you about my new show on pet candy. Join me and make some cute pet stuff. Talk about life and love and everything in between. Check out the Renee Michelle show on mypetcandy.com and let's have some fun. What about growing plants?
2: We have a brand new vegetable garden that we just put in this year. And we're in this, I think we're in this little grace period because none of the bugs expected it. And we haven't had one plant die. Everything is growing like crazy. Um, Stuff is growing much faster than we can eat it. And that's been a lot of fun. We also have some chickens who lay a lot of eggs they they wander around our yard completely free all day. They go back in the coop at night by themselves. I just close and lock the door. I think it is really nice to be involved in making some of your own food or a lot of your own food in these different ways. You know, To be in contact with real life matters, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the chickens probably help with your bug problem there too. <laughs> but yeah, I think, you know, especially I mean, right now I'm living in a big city in Pasadena and I grew up having like a huge garden every year and we grew our own food from the middle of summer to all like through the end of the fall when everything came in. So not having that is right now is definitely something I miss a lot and our honeybees and stuff we use to pollinate everything. So it's really, I think something a lot of people miss out on now because it's so urbanized it's really a disconnect between your food and where it comes from and what goes into it.
2: Right. Yep, yeah, I think so too. Yep. Yeah.
0: But especially the bees.
1: <laughs> oh the bees. Oh, I don't want to talk about the bees. It's so sad. But you have bees. Your family has bees. We do.
0: Yeah, we do because it really helps our garden and our fruit trees and my we love the honey. It helps with my family my dad and my brother both have um, allergies. So when they eat a little bit of that local honey every day, it actually really helps.
1: What is your favorite animal?
2: I have about 50. <laughs> I tend to like the biggest and most extreme examples of whatever group. So that's probably a guy thing. I don't know. But you know, like, I really love seabirds, but I guess my favorite Seabird is a wandering albatross, which is the biggest albatross. It has an 11 foot wingspan. I love the tunas and my favorite tuna is the bluefin tuna. That's the biggest one that can weigh 1,500 pounds or more. I love sea turtles and my favorite one is the leatherback sea turtle that can weigh 2,000 pounds.
0: Those are fantastic. Like, I can't even imagine if I saw a 1,500-pound tuna. I don't even know <laughs> what I would do.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I've actually been swimming with 1,000-pound tunas. But I also love a lot of little subtle things, you know, and little little flying jewels like warblers and hummingbirds. I mean, I don't, you know, favorites. Uh, I don't think too much about favorites. It's just too much. That's so great.
0: Yeah, just the love and respect for uh, everything out there has their own little role to play. But how does it feel to have, I mean, your book named one of the best of the year by the New York Times? I mean, you've written so many, like you have a favorite or anything that becoming wild, like anything that you want that book to accomplish?
2: Well, I want all the books to open people's hearts and inspire them to try to help keep the world alive. And what I, one thing I think comes out of Becoming Wild and the cultural aspects is it shows that culture is often an arbitrary thing. You know, what kind of clothes we wear and what kind of clothes people wear in other cultures, it's arbitrary. It looks weird to us because we're not used to them or we think their music sounds weird. But, you know, if we grew up there, those would be our things. And it's just totally arbitrary so when you look at the, the tremendous problems that we have in our own culture you realize by putting it in the context of all of the rest of life on earth you, you realize that our cultural troubles are meaningless we create all this trouble for ourselves for no good reason at all none at all and why you know and just like We can stop doing this. And the problems we have are cultural. They have to be learned. If you break the transmission and just stop teaching hatred, it would go away in a generation. That, I think, is a a huge take-home. It felt fantastic to have the book named by the New York Times as one of the notable books of the year. It actually got onto six different lists of notable books or best books of the year. And, you know, the thing is like when you write a book, you sit in a room alone for months and then to have people notice is a fantastic feeling.
0: Absolutely. That's uh, it's a lot of hours and a lot of time thinking through your own thoughts and organizing them and putting them into a way that you think will I guess, touch people the right way or like convey the message that you want them to hear. In your travels, have you ever had like one experience that stands out about maybe the strangest thing you've ever seen in a culture or in a certain species or something that just was really maybe odd to you the first time you saw it?
2: I don't really remember anything that really struck me as, oh, wow, that's so odd. But I mean, I've been among people who live totally different than I do. Like, um, I've spent a little bit of extended time in a very traditional Maasai community where there's no property lines. People lived in huts made of dung and straw and um, had their cattle in a corral that encircled the whole house at night so that... They wouldn't be vulnerable to lions and leopards. I think my impressions of all of that was more of wonderment and just like, oh wow, look at this, look at how people can live, you know, and, and learning a lot about what it means to be a human being in a way doesn't change that much, even if the entire setting is totally different. People still want to belong, people are still excited when a baby is born. People still have their rituals about life. They have a way of understanding if they're doing well or not. You know, in that culture, it's like if you have a lot of cattle, you're doing really well. They asked me, how many cattle do I have? And when I said none, they just couldn't understand how somebody so poor could get along in the world. Everybody is relative. That's a thing, and I... I was there when I was quite young, I was 26. So that stuck with me for the rest of my life, learning the implications of that and those impressions.
0: Yeah, I guess it's just, you know, seeing the essence of, you know, being human and human culture and relationships that don't change. I mean, they may look different or they may do slightly different things, but they're all around the same sort of core, Values, I guess you could say, of the same core needs of humans.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. I think I think the same core needs and the same core values. And I, I also think, I mean, uh, something that's related to this is it, in my life when I was really young and I, I had like no money and I lived in a tiny place that I did not own.
1: I thought you were in ecology. <laughs>
2: right, but I, you know, I was. I was as happy about happy things and as unhappy about bad things going on in the world as I am now, where, you know, now I have a very different life and I own a house and, uh, and I have a boat and I have a car and all, all this kind of stuff. You know, it didn't change how happy I am. So I just think a, a lot of what we chase and a lot of what we think is important it isn't.
0: yeah. I agree.
2: And the important things, I think, I think we often don't understand what's important.
0: Yeah. Or it takes people maybe a little bit longer to realize what's important. I think COVID helped with that a lot to kind of give people maybe that little jolt of say, Hey, you know, if I were to die tomorrow, like what's really important to me, you know, family or that shiny new car over there.
2: Well, yeah. And, you know, it's kind of interesting that a lot of people don't want to go back to commuting to an office. I've been hearing a lot about that. Uh, I always thought that would be like the worst thing. I mean, for my whole life, I thought commuting a long distance to an office in a lot of traffic is about the worst way to spend your time. And a lot of people who got a taste of not doing it, they don't want to do it anymore. That's one thing COVID, I think, showed a lot of people.
1: And I heard a lot of um, really big companies are implementing work from home now. Like I think Google, a lot of tech.
2: Right.
0: Or a hybrid, at least, you know, half home, half office. But um, Carl, you started a nonprofit also. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how people can get involved?
2: Yeah, sure. It's called The Safina Center. And what we do do here is we create creative products like books or films or art or photography. Um, All our fellows are creative in some way. And we're trying to make a connection between information that is, you know, scientifically correct and your emotional response to what's going on in the world. We're not just trying to give you just a lot of information. There's a lot of information around there. You don't need us for information, but we, tell you stories about why it matters and to make an emotional connection to our audiences and help them feel inspired to act in whatever way they, they find appropriate in their life to act. So that's what we do here. And you can see the work at safinacenter.org on the web. That's our website, safinacenter.org.
1: That is really cool. We'll be sure to implement, well, to put that in our notes. Um, I think that's really cool that you're able to integrate the arts because the arts has a whole new reach, right? It's like we can write research all day long, but you know, when you incorporate art, that's just, yeah, it gets new reach. That's really awesome. I hear you're quite the artist yourself, um, but I've seen some of your photos.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, my great, secret to my great photography is throw out all the bad images.
0: So you're only left with the good ones.
2: Only left with the good ones. I've gotten to be kind of okay with the camera and I get into some fantastic situations. I I often will shoot a thousand frames in a day. That's a lot of hitting the delete key, but you know, because the animals are not posing and the light is not right and it's very tricky and then I'm trying to take notes and I'm trying to do other things at the same time. But I I managed to always squeak out with a few really good images, so that's great.
1: Especially the ones with the elephants, I love them! They're so cute! They are. I've seen your, um, with the little baby
2: elephants. And- yeah, those, those were little orphaned elephants and uh, very, you know, both heartbreaking and also you just feel tremendous gratitude for people who devote their lives to taking care of them and rewilding them. Those are all going to be, you know, get a a second shot at life. And they've had a lot of success doing that.
1: We'll be right back with more Pet Candy. Hi, this is Shay, and I want to tell you about my new show on Pet Candy, Cooking with Shay. I make vegan eating easy and fun. Check it out on Pet Candy TV.
0: So, when they're orphaned, do they get a new elephant mother, or do they have to be carried by people and then kind of reintroduced to the
2: wild? Yeah, usually they have to be cared for by people and then reintroduced slowly try to reintegrate, well, to integrate with a new group. But that goes well. And the really astonishing thing is they now have so many adult elephants that were orphans. They seem to completely know what's going on. They come to the release site often. They accept the new orphans right away. So, you know, again, it, it starts to tell you that we are with other Minds, other beings that care about life and relationships, and they do have some really good perceptions about what's going on with them.
1: I think that perspective needs to be shared. I was really sad the other week. I was in a sports store out in Texas, and they had a whole display of 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 animals that were, you know, taxidermied wild animals. They had, you know, rhinos there, and I was it, it just it was really sad. But then to see you know, they had a little plaque that was just saying how regulated hunting helps conservation efforts, you know, and allegedly that, you know, seeing these animals here and, and kids can get close and see the animals and it, and just kind of sharing that regulated hunting has helped like save the giraffe or, you know, things like that. So it's like to hear that perspective, I had never really seen that side of the coin before. So
2: yeah well i hate the idea but it's true it's true that there are there are places that are huge amounts of privately held land where they have people come in who are intent on killing what lives there and they wouldn't pay those exorbitant amounts of money to just go and look at them and to you know do something that's a lot harder than pulling a trigger which is getting really good photographs that happens in, in places that are national parks, but for some reason, these other places um, they don't they don't have a clientele a non-lethal clientele. They don't have it and yet those exorbitant fees are what keeps that land from just getting demolished for you know farms and expanding human footprints and the usual things that are causing the tremendous declines of giraffes and lions and elephants and all of our favorite animals. So it's kind of a complicated situation. I I think, you know, the answer would be if you want to pay $50,000 to go and kill a rhino, why don't you just go pay $50,000 to go and look at them and support their existence. But psychologically, the market doesn't work that way.
1: Or, and then they can take home a souvenir, the, um, the trimmed rhino horns, right? You pay 50000 you get a trimmed rhino horn, you keep them alive. Sounds like a horn.
2: Could be. It could be a lot better. It could be a lot better, yeah. And in some places, like in Kenya, there is no legal hunting. There is quite a lot of poaching, but there's no legal hunting. You know, And people going there to view wildlife is one of the biggest sources of money in their economy. And same, same, same thing in a few other countries around the world. Uh, but then there are others that have a hunting... Basis and a hunting model. I hate the idea, but that is the way it works in some places.
0: Yeah, I mean, at least you're uh, you've done so much work for conservation and for you know getting people to kind of resonate with other animals and their place in the world and everything like that. I guess what would you consider your greatest achievement with everything that you've done?
2: Well, in the nineties, I was involved a lot in ocean conservation having to do with ending overfishing and changing the laws so that there were limits on how much could be caught and that fish populations in the US waters anyway, could recover. I wrote some of the language that is now in federal law about that. And a lot of it has worked and a lot of a lot of fish populations in our waters are recovering. The ones that swim in and out of our waters across the high seas are often still really being depleted when they're outside our 200 mile range. And in other countries, the situation is mostly really terrible, but we did something very good here and it made a difference and it matters. And I can see the difference.
1: Have you seen Sea Spiracy yet?
2: No, I have not seen it. And I'm, in a way, I'm sort of boycotting it because, first of all, I, I, I do know a lot about all those issues, but I also know that um, the filmmaker blames environmental groups. And in, environmental groups have no legal authority, they can't make any changes. They can only beg for and lobby for change to be made. And the way the world is, is not the fault of environmental groups. Uh, you know, A lot of the things that we tried to do, we succeeded at, and a lot of the things we tried to do, we failed at. It, if we were in charge, we, we would have succeeded at everything, And but we're not in charge. Environmental groups have no authority, and they're not the reason that things are as bad as they are. They're certainly not the reason that illegal things that are against the law are still happening because of corruption. That's not the point you know, that's not the fault of environmental groups. That's the fault of corrupt people and corrupt law enforcers. That's, that's whose fault it is. And, you know, there's some very horrible stuff happening in fishing.
1: I know, we really do need a two-part series to this, <laughs> for this episode, to this episode. I feel like there's so much you can just, you know, enlighten us on.
2: No, thank you. Well, it's pretty endless. The things that we could talk about are pretty endless, but that's why I work on books. so it's it's there. Not everybody is a reader, and not every you know, I know a lot of people who don't have a lot of time for reading. It takes me a long time to get through a book because I usually read a little bit at bedtime. but it it is there. That's the best way I can think of to get a lot of this stuff across and tell these stories that I think you know really really can hit you in the heart. And mind at the same time.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and it you know becomes part of the culture, so you can impact culture that way through storytelling. So, yep,
2: that's the that's really the idea. Yep.
1: Well, speaking of copies, where can we? Well, Shannon and I each have a copy, but <laughs> we're blessed with a copy, and so it's yeah, it's it's been great. But it like you said, it takes a little time to get through. But where can people find your book?
2: Any place that sells books, my books are available. They're, they're published by one of the major publishers in New York, Henry Holt Company. They're, um, you can get them through any bookstore. You can get them through any online seller. And they're, they are very easy to get.
0: Awesome. Uh, yeah, I think um, we got ours through Amazon, <laughs> like we get a lot of other things. <laughs> but yeah, super uh, convenient and easy to access. For all of our listeners today, actually, um, we're gonna do a giveaway for a couple of our listeners sponsored by Vet Candy. So, if you guys check out my Vet Candy on Instagram to check out how to enter, we're gonna be giving away 10 copies of Carl Safina's book, Becoming Wild. And me and Tatiana have both started reading it, and it's really, really touching stories. So, if you guys uh, wanna enter, Feel free to watch out on Instagram.
1: Well, Carl, thank you so so much for joining us today. I think um, you know we've you've added a lot of a lot of value in our days today, just as far as learning and learning about you, learning about you know your mission, some of the work you've done. So thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Well, it was really really a pleasure, and I, I know this is an audio podcast, but we're doing it on Zoom, so. The chance to look at two beautiful smiles for an hour helped to make my day a really good one.
1: Thank you.
0: Yes. It was so good to meet you and it's, it's crazy. I mean, at least with zoom now we can meet so many more people and get to interact as close as possible. So.
1: All right. So that's all we have for today's episode. Thank you all so much for joining us. I'm Tatiana Rogers. And I'm Shannon Gregoire. We'll see you next time. It's Pet Candy Radio.